Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 30. I am going to call this section, Should Paul Die and Go to Heaven, or Should He Stay and Minister to the Philippians? That's basically what he's concerned with. Our context is this. In the first 15 verses of Philippians chapter 1, Paul is trying to encourage the Philippians as he writes from his Roman imprisonment, whether it's house arrest or in jail, whatever. He's writing to encourage them. He just finished saying, look, my imprisonment has turned out for the better cause, for, for the better progress of the gospel. It, it's been a good thing. He's kind of a Romans 8.28 statement here. Things are working out well because now the gospel's gone out into the Praetorian Guard and, and other places too. So that's the good news, but now he's going to start off with some bad news in Philippians 1.15, and we'll go through verse 19. Verse 15, some, Paul says, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. All right, so here's the bad news that Paul is facing. There are people in, in Rome that are basically opposing Paul. Now, these people probably are not heretics. Possibly they are, but probably not because Paul doesn't denounce them for heretical doctrines. He doesn't denounce them for immorality either, so they're not practicing immorality. They're just preaching the gospel, but they are opposed to Paul. They're probably thinking this big shot apostle, he's got all these churches, and he writes all these letters, and everybody thinks so well of him. And But we, we are going to be, we're going to win more people to Christ than he is because he's in jail now, and we're going to have people look at us and say, what what big shots, big shot Christian evangelist we are, or big shot Christian teachers we are. Now you think, how could Christians do that? Well, I'll tell you how. Just look around. How many times have you seen pastors brag about how many people are coming to their church or how much money is coming in? What's the size of our budget? Stuff that's absolutely nauseating, and it's done with no sense of shame, and nobody calls them on it. Competition in the ministry. Oh, we can't put another Christian event in our bulletin because that means that people will then go there and not come to us and feed our budget and pay my salary and pay my mortgage. That kind of stuff. Listen, I've been around long enough. I've seen it personally. I could give you, I could name names and tell you places, and I, which I'm not going to do, of course. But the point is, yeah, there is a lot of competition out there. Who's going to be the big shot? It's disgusting. So how do you deal with it? Well, this is how Paul dealt with it. He said, fine, as long as they're preaching the gospel. As long as they're preaching the gospel, I do not care. He said that these people that are preaching Christ from envy and strife, envy, envy of who? Envy of Paul. NIV Study Bible puts it this way, quote, Rival factions at Rome tried to take advantage of Paul's imprisonment. They were motivated to preach more aggressively, hoping to take over Paul's place of prominence. Perhaps they wanted to prove that their message was somehow better than Paul's. They may have wanted to make Paul mired in legal difficulties look bad so that they could look good. And as I said, they weren't practicing immorality. They probably were not preaching a false gospel doctrinally, although because Paul would have jumped all over that. He's, he's known for jumping on false doctrine. I'll just read the book of Galatians. And he jumps on immorality. Read the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. But Clark and Jameson Foster and Brown said that maybe they were preaching a false gospel 
doctrinally. Maybe they could have been Judaizing legalists who denounced Paul to the Jews living at Rome. But I ask, would Paul have tolerated that? I don't think so, not knowing the Apostle Paul. So I think Clark and Jameson, Fawcett and Brown are probably wrong to even speculate that in my humble opinion. So these guys are preaching the gospel. They're not immoral. They're not doctrinal heretics. But they're trying to climb up. Every time I know this does not directly apply to this story I'm going to tell you right now, but this verse has been a comfort to me when I think about John MacArthur, who every time he opens his mouth, he preaches something that I disagree with. Not not the basics of not the Nicene basics, of course, of orthodoxy, because he's a totally orthodox person. But he's a dispensationalist, and I'm not very high on dispensationalism to say the least. But the main thing is when he starts denouncing all charismatics as they had never done a bit of good in the body of Christ. I saw him say that on the YouTube with no sense of shame, not one sense of shame. And his buddy, his right-hand man, Phil Johnson, says the same thing when called on. He said, do you really want to back up your boss on this, that no charismatic has ever done anything good for the body of Christ? Oh, yeah, that's right. They ain't worth a darn. There's no excuse for that. No excuse. And so when I, when the steam starts rising at the top of my head, I want, has he ever heard of, for example, uh, all the charity work that the 700 Club has done up in Virginia Beach. Well, you might not like Pat Robertson, but he's done a lot. He's given a lot of money to the poor. That's good, is it not? Not to mention the fact that all the people whose lives have been turned around, people like me who was dying in skepticism until I saw all kind of miracles being done, and I said, ha, ah, man, we're going to win. Now, I have been totally saddened by the fact that the hyperfaith heretics have swallowed up the movement as and there was other stuff to the discipleship movement which is gone now but it was horrible yeah there's been a lot of doctrinal crap all the armenianism the women preachers all the stuff that i despise yeah i can i can understand why uh john MacArthur would attack those things i got no problem with that i've attacked them too i've got a youtube video series out attacking charismaniacs no problem but when you say that every charismatic paul was a the apostle paul was a charismatic Every charismatic or no charismatic has ever done anything good in the body of Christ. Okay, so you see, I'm, I'm upset with this guy. I'm upset with him. But then I think, yeah, but he's preaching the gospel. In fact, one of his disciples got Kanye West saved. And that was big for the kingdom of God. See, so I'm happy for John MacArthur. I'm happy that he's out there preaching the gospel of Christ. And that was exactly what Paul's attitude was. That should be our attitude, too, when we see people out there preaching nonsense. I mean, you know, I don't like Joel Osteen either. And I and I was around some people who don't like Joel Osteen. I mentioned, isn't it great? Kanye West is out there preaching the gospel. First word out of the mouth. Yeah, but he's on. He's he's going to be on Joel Osteen's service. And I thought, well, what should I do? Be more disgusted by the who he's associating with, or be more happy that he's preaching the gospel? Which way should it be? Well, enough of that. Paul says these people who are preaching out of envy or strife are there's some that do that, but there are also some who preach with goodwill. They do it out of love. Love for whom? Love for Christ? Love for Paul? Hmm, probably, well, it could be both. In fact, I think it's probably Paul because verse 16 says, The latter, those who are preaching from goodwill, do it out of love, knowing that I, Paul, am appointed for the defense of the gospel, for the defense of the gospel. So they love, they are happy with Paul because they understand his apostolic authority. They understand what Paul's motives are. And so they love Paul when they're preaching. Or it could be they're loving Christ, I'm not sure. It, it could go either way. Verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. They have some good motives. They're preaching Christ, but they've got selfish ambition mixed in with those pure motives. 
mixed motives are not good. Our motives should be pure when we are preaching the gospel. I remember hearing an ex-fundamentalist missionary in China, whose church I used to go to in Wenzhou, China, and he said that he was on a bus ministry one time, and they were out there evangelizing, and the, and the little fundamentalist evangelists would, would compete with one another. And there was this one of the fundamentalists was sitting down on a chair witnessing some kid who was about to accept Christ, and his team leader comes up to him and says, move, move, let me finish this. And so he sat down to let the guy to Christ. Why? So he could get his statistics up. Now, that's the sort of stuff that's absolutely nauseating, nauseating. So I would say that's mixed motive. Being charitable, I would say that's mixed motives. Selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. Thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Thinking that's what they were thinking. Ah, we're going to make Paul look bad because we are preaching better than he is now. But they didn't succeed. They thought they were going to succeed. They were thinking they were going to succeed. But they did not succeed because Paul was not distressed because he was happy. Because in verse 18 we read this, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. So he's happy. The gospel is being preached. He doesn't like the, the people that are doing it or why they're doing it or how they're doing it, but by golly, they were doing it. They were preaching to Christ. In pretense, either they were pretending to love Christ, they were pretending to have zeal for the gospel, they were pretending to have love for souls, whatever they were pretending, they were hip hypocritical about something, Paul doesn't say, but he doesn't care because the gospel is being preached. Now, that's a pretty tolerant attitude, if you ask me. Tolerant in the true sense, not in the modern secular humanist sense. So Paul talks about rejoicing. He's in jail now. He mentions rejoice. Somebody pointed out somewhere how many times Paul mentions the word rejoice in the, the book of Philippians. I remember hearing a talk on this one time, and I thought, yeah, that's remarkable. Because he's in prison, and he's rejoicing, 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 rejoicing. He says, and in this I rejoice, and he repeats it. Yes, and I will rejoice. Verse 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. All right, now, Paul says, I know. That's pretty strong, right? I know. What does he know? That this is going to be turn out for his deliverance. Now, here, Paul sounds very confident that he will get out of jail. But you go drop down to verse 27, second half of the verse, he doesn't sound so confident. He says, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit. Whether I come and see you or whether I'm absent. So it doesn't sound like he's sure he's going to go. Now here's a possibility to reconcile that. No, I know in verse 19, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. And in verse 27b, whether I come or not, I hope I see you here about that you're standing firm. How do you reconcile that? Well, here in verse 27b, Paul is not sure whether he will travel to Philippi. He says, whether I come to see you or whether I'm absent. But in verse 18, Paul is sure he will get out of jail. So you could say, well, he's con he knows he's going to get out of jail, but he doesn't know whether he's, once he gets out of jail whether he's going to travel to Philippi. Okay, that might reconcile that, but we still have another problem. Well, here's another possibility to reconcile before we go further. Maybe Paul says, yeah, I'm sure I'm going to be delivered. I just don't know how I'm going to be delivered. So, so maybe that's it. But we still got another problem. Verse 20, Philippians 1.20. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Well, now here, Paul doesn't sound like he knows whether he's going to live or die, much less get out of jail. How do we reconcile all that? Well, I think that Paul, well, I tell you what, when we get to verse 25, we're going to come back to this issue. How does Paul know that he's going to be delivered, but then was he actually delivered? Then why does he express equivocation about whether he's going to get out or not, or whether he's going to live or die or not? 
Let's just say that right here in verse 19, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. He doesn't say how he's going to be delivered, but he knows that somehow God's going to take care of the situation. And isn't that what faith is? Not being able to see something? But nonetheless, you know the essence of things not seen. You know that it's going to be all right, even though you don't know how it's going to turn out. Whether you're going to live, whether Paul's going to live or die, whether he's going to get to see the Philippians again or not, he knows that he's going to be delivered. How? Through the Philippians' prayers and the Holy Spirit's provision to him, the Spirit of Jesus Christ's provision to him. That's how he's going to be delivered. Now let's pick up a little, uh, let's wrap these five verses up with a few details. These people were preaching a false doctrine. They could have been going so far as to stir up legal trouble for Paul, as John Gill suggests, by preaching frequently about the city, and that would stir up the authorities against Paul because Paul was a well-known Christian. That would really be low, if you ask me. I don't know if they sunk that far. Paul says in verse 16 that his the uh, people who are preaching Christ from goodwill in Rome know that he has been appointed for the, appointed for the defense of the gospel. Appointed means quote from John Gill quote ordained and appointed a minister of it before the world was separated to it from his mother's womb and was called unto and sent to preach it by Christ. John Gill takes a lot of the salutations that Paul uses in his letters and he conflates them and puts them all together to show how Paul was ordained before the foundation of the world to preach the gospel. Stopped suddenly on the road to Damascus in the midst of persecuting Christians. And, and Jesus says, I'm going to make you a minister to the Gentiles and kings, Paul. Uh, so stop what you're doing. Uh, change your life. Let me summarize this Paul's thinking about his deliverance in verse 19. For I know this will turn out for my deliverance. First of all, do we know that Paul was actually delivered from prison? Most, Many people seem to think so. They talk about Paul's first imprisonment and his second imprisonment, but not all. It's not a slam dunk because there's some that say, no, he never got out. So we don't know whether he was actually delivered from prison. But what are some options when Paul says he knows this will turn out for his deliverance? Does he know he will get out of jail? Mm, but that contradicts verse 127b and 120 above those verses i just read whether i come to see you or i'm absent in 127 and 120 whether by my whether by life or by death so he shows diffidence about whether he's going to come or not come to the philippi and he shows equivocation about whether he's going to live or die so how does he know that he's going to get out of jail does it mean deliverance from death? He knows that he will not die. Well, as I said, Philippians 120, whether by life or by death, it sounds like he doesn't know that either. Third option, Paul didn't know how he was to be delivered. He just knew that he was to be delivered. And that's what I just finished saying, I think, is how you solve this little problem. Note here how hyperfaith teachers pray too specifically. Oh, if you don't pray exactly how to get out of jail, you're not showing enough faith. You need to tell God specifically what... And I've heard enough of that to know that I reject it thoroughly because you don't know how to pray. That's what speaking in tongues is for. When you don't know how to pray, you pray. So you can pray in the Spirit because the Spirit knows better than you do what the answer is. Paul didn't know how he was going to get out of jail. He was a human being just like us. Sure, he had a revelation. Adam Clark said he had a revelation from the Spirit. and That's how he knew he was going to get to the Philippians. But no, I don't know how Adam Clark says that. I don't know why he says that. Yeah, Paul had revelations here and there, but he didn't have them all the time. He was a human being just like we did, just like we are. And so sometimes you just have to pray, God, deliver me. I don't know how. It's too complicated for me. I'm sinking. I'm dying, drowning. I'm going under. I don't know how you're going to save me, but please do it. You don't do like the hyper-faith people say, oh, you didn't pray exactly how God's going to deliver you. Therefore, you don't have enough faith, and therefore the bad thing that happens to you is all your fault. No, no, no. Philippians 1, 20 through 21, according to my earnest expectation and hope, 
That's in the middle of a sentence, so let me go back and pick up verse, and then the verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now there Paul explicitly says what his earnest expectation and hope is, is that Christ is going to be exalted in his body, in his life. Whether he dies or whether he lives, it doesn't make any difference. He knows hope means confident expectation of the future. He knows that he's not going to be put to shame. And he was right, right? Because we're still talking about the good old Apostle Paul 2,000 years later. Why does he Why does he have all boldness that Christ will be exalted in his body? Verse 21, because for Paul to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a little bit of a cryptic way of saying to live is Christ means I live because Christ is the author of my spiritual life. To live is to show that Christ has given me life. Or it could be I live because Christ is living in me now. As John Gill says, it was not so much that he lived as Christ that lived in him. So for me to live is Christ living in me and all of what that entails. We're going to see later on that Paul has great confidence in going to the Philippians. He's going to say that his trip to the the Philippians is going to give them all boldness. And some translations say joy. Some translations say glory. But the point is, a lot of good things are going to happen from Paul's visit to the Philippians. So that shows that Christ is living in him, and that will exalt Paul in his body, in his, in his, uh, in his life. But on the other hand, if he dies, remember, he doesn't know whether he's going, to live or, he's, going to, he's going to live or die. So he says, if I die, again, what's the game? Well, he's going to go to heaven. Now, heaven's a wonderful thing to talk about. Let's listen to John Gill describe it. John Gill could describe anything better than anybody I've ever seen. He should have been a novelist. Quote, Delivered from all the troubles and distresses of this life, arising from diseases of body, losses and disappointments in worldly things, from the oppressions and persecutions of wicked men, from indwelling sin, unbelief, doubts and fears, and the temptations of Satan. He, as soon as dies, enters into the presence of God, where is fullness of joy and is immediately with Christ, which is far better than being here, beholding his glory and enjoying communion with him. He is at once in the company of angels and glorified saints, is possessed of perfect holiness and knowledge, inherits a kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world, and wears a crown of life, righteousness and glory, enters upon an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, is received into everlasting habitations, into mansions of light, life, love, joy, peace, and comfort, is at perfect rest and surrounded with endless pleasures. Well, let's see if the Muslims can beat that with their their kahuri, their brown-eyed virgins. Let's see if the Muslims can beat that. So to die is the gain, and of course the application that's the same for us is just like the Paul. When we die, it's a gain for us, a huge gain. Philippians 1, 22 through 24. But if I am to live on in the flesh, again, Paul is, doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I will do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Now, here's Paul has a choice. He says, I do not know which to choose. Now, I remember having a hyper-faith guy tell me one time, see, there Paul has, a, has he can choose whether to live or die. And I remember thinking, buddy, you're nuts. But I didn't know why he was nuts. So I had to listen for a while and to look at this verse, I do not know which way to choose. Well, here's the answer. Paul couldn't choose whether he was going to live and die. He's expressed in the verses himself. I don't know whether to live or die. He's expressed that over and over again. He doesn't know whether he's going to live and die. If he doesn't know, how can he choose? What he means is, choose to prefer 
What he means is, I don't know which to prefer, dying and go to heaven or staying and working with the Philippians. So that's one more example of hyper-faith, idiotic teaching. Paul says he's hard-pressed from both directions. He wants to die and go to heaven, and he wants to work for the Philippians. He has two different conflicting desires. Now think about it. How many of us have a desire to die and go to heaven? We should. We should be heavenly-minded all the time. We should think about, boy, what's, what's waiting for us? That eternal weight of glory that's waiting for us is going to be a whole lot better than sitting here trying to avoid them, them damnable coronavirus viruses. It's going to be a whole lot better up there. Philippians 1, 25 through 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Convinced of this. Convinced of what? Convinced that staying behind to do fruitful labor for the Philippians was necessary, which is the previous verse. So I'm convinced that I need to stay behind for you, Philippians. So he says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. All right, well, immediately we have that same problem again. Paul knows, but did he actually end up in Philippi again after he got out of jail? Well, here are the options here. John Gill says Paul was correctly convinced that he would be out of jail. He correctly knew that he would be out of jail to help the Philippians. Actually, that's Adam Clark says that, not Gill. Clark says he had that knowledge from a divine revelation that he was going to see the Philippians. How does Clark know that? He speculates. He doesn't know that. Now, here's some options as to how we know that Paul actually got out and saw the Philippians. Well, because people say that Paul traveled through several countries after his release. In fact, the reason people say that Paul traveled through several countries after his release is due to this verse. I know that I will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Well, that makes the argument circular because you, Paul knows that he's going to get there because he got there. But we don't know that he got there. We just assume from this verse that he got there. No, this verse only says that Paul, quote unquote, knows that he's going to get, that he's going to remain on the earth and continue with the Philippians. That's all that the verse says. It doesn't say that they actually got there. Paul could have known wrongly. He could have been mistaken. Well, anyway, those who believe that Paul got out, I hope this verse does not prove that, but they could be right. The idea is that Paul got out. He was then committed back to prison, and he was executed in prison. John Gill says there's no sufficient proof of this. As I say, this is something a lot of people believe, but it is controverted because there's no absolute proof of it. Jameson Fawcett and Brown disagrees with Gill. He says that he did not know what was going to happen as far as human appearances were concerned. He doubtless returned from his first captivity back to Philippi. Doubtless, without a doubt, Masonic strong, Jameson Fawcett and Brown. Jameson Fawcett and Brown quotes Philemon 122, which is a prison epistle. Meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, Paul tells Philemon, since I hope through your prayers I will be restored to you. Well, First of all, Philemon, does this prove that Paul was out of jail, that he was out of jail and, and escaped, what was set free from prison in Rome before he went back the second time? It doesn't prove that at all. It might suggest it, but it doesn't prove it. Prepare a guest room for me, but does that say that Paul actually got to use that guest room? Paul says, I hope that through your prayers I will be restored to you. He doesn't say he was restored to Philemon. And besides, Philemon's in Colossae, and we're talking about Paul going back to see the Philippians again. So you put all that together, you see it's a slim read that says that Paul got out. We don't know he got out. So when Paul says that I know I'm going to see you again, many people assume that he was correctly correct about his assumption, correct about his knowledge that he was going to see the Philippians again. There are others who say that Paul was incorrectly convinced that he would get out of jail and help the Philippians. This is John Gill's suggestion. 
he mentions it. I don't know if he affirms it, but he at least mentions it. Now, the first thing that might strike your mind is, what, Paul made a mistake? Well, Paul did make mistakes. And you say, oh, but the, 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 Paul writes inerrant scripture. How could he make mistakes? The doctrine of inerrancy says the writings are inerrant, not the actions, not Paul's state of mind. Those are not necessarily inerrant. Well, those are not inerrant. They, they could be subject to error. Inerrancy goes to Paul's writing, not his actions. So that's not a problem. So Paul could have been incorrect about his knowledge that he was going to come see the Philippians. So our three options are Paul was correctly convinced of his knowledge to see the Corinthians. The second option, he was incorrectly convinced that he would see the Corinthians. The third option is Paul didn't know either way, but he was hoping to come. Philippians 1.27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, that's verse 27, and again, you say, well, okay, well, if, that's, if you say that Paul was not sure one way or the other, how do you explain that word no in verse 25 when he says, I know I'm going to come and remain with you? Well, if you, the way I reconcile it is he knew wrongly. He knew he was going to come, but he, he was wrong. You know, I have a lot of things I know I'm right. I used to know that a pre-trib rapture was true, and now I don't think so anymore. So, you know, I don't think that's a problem. Verse 25, Paul says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul's constantly talking about ministering to the Corinthians, whom he, he started the church, remember, he and Silas on the second journey, Acts 16. And he wants them to progress in the faith, and he wants them to increase their joy. I want to remain and continue with you for your progress and for your joy in the faith. Progress in the faith just means your continued sanctification as you are transformed from glory to glory on your way to your glorification with Christ. The gospel always has progress in it. Our Christianity never stays the same. Our life in Christ is not static. It's dynamic. It's always growing. It might go up, might go down. We might have some setbacks. But the overall trend is upward. Now, Paul mentions joy again in verse 25. I want, I'm going to come see you, Corinthians, continue with you. For your joy in the faith, and he's already mentioned rejoice, rejoice twice. He, he rejoices even because of those selfish preachers that are competing with him. He still rejoices over that. He's rejoicing in prison. Christianity was never meant to be a burden, folks. No matter all the garbage that happens in this world, Christianity was never meant to be a burden, no matter how bad the external circumstances. Adam Clark makes an interesting psychological observation here. He says that men rejoice more in recovering a thing that was lost than they do in a continual possession of which is of much greater value. Just like you don't have air and all of a sudden all the air is sucked out of the room and somebody turns the fan on. Boy, you rejoice in having that air, don't you? That really is true. I suppose that Paul, being deprived of his fellowship with the Philippians, being deprived of his freedom in jail, he, he felt a lot more joy when he got out. Now, let's look at verse 26. We're going to have a translation problem here. I will remain and continue with you, verse 26, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. So Paul's going to come to them again, and something good is going to happen. The question is, what is that good thing that will happen? Depends on your translation. New American Standard Bible says that your proud confidence in me may abound after I come see you again. The KGV says your rejoicing may abound in me when I come to you again. So there's confidence in Paul as a possibility that will increase. Rejoicing will increase. Holman Christian Study Bible NIV, Young's Literal has boasting in Christ may abound when I come see you. You can boast in Christ more. 
For example, here's Philippians 1.26 in the HCSB. So that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. So there's a third option. Here's a fourth option. Glorying in Christ may abound. That's the ESV and J.P. Green's literal. Here's a good one here. Lexham English Bible. What's going to increase when I come to see you? What you can be proud of? Whatever that means. Well... <laughs> I think the majority here seems to have glorying in Christ and boasting in Christ. Notice that the KGV and the Holy Christians and the uh, NASB put the emphasis on Paul as the one doing good to the Philippians. And the NASB has the confidence in Paul may, be in, may increase when Paul gets there to the Philippi. And the KJV says that Paul's presence will make them more joyful. Joyful in seeing Paul, perhaps? It doesn't say, but it, it could be. Well, but the other translations that I mentioned have Paul is the mere agent of the good stuff that's going to happen on account of me and then the good stuff that happens is giving glory to God, glorying in Christ, boasting in Christ. So I tend to prefer those translations. If you have a doubt, go with the translation that, that gives more glory to God. I think that's what we ought to do. It's interesting how scrambled the translations are of that. It must be, I don't I haven't looked at the Greek. It must be hard to translate for some reason. But anyway, good things are going to happen in Christ Jesus when Paul comes to see them again, if he indeed gets there, which we don't know that he did. We go to verses 27 and 28. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Now, as I've said, probably ad nauseum by now, when he says, whether I come see you or remain absent, that cuts against the argument that Paul knew certainly was going to come, as I mentioned in the previous verse, verses 18, I think it was. Actually, it's verse 19. Paul says, I know that all this is going to turn out for his deliverance if they would just pray for him. So Paul knows, but here where we are in verse 27, Paul says, whether I come see you or remain absent, that seems like it doesn't jibe well this is one way that i didn't mention in the previous verse is how it could jibe is that this we could take this as an a fortiori argument on the part of paul he says look even if i don't make it you will still be standing firm even more so will you be standing firm if i do make it and i do intend to come and see you again and i perfectly i know that i'm going to get there but even if i don't get there you're still going to stand firm so that way Paul could be confident and at the same time express more of a hypothetical possibility that he doesn't come and see them. Now, that's just an option. I don't, I don't think that's a 100% slam dunk interpretation there. That's just an option. I still think that Paul is trying to express confidence while at the same time leaving open the options that things might not turn out the way he thinks they should turn out or might turn out because he's not a prophet. He's not God. He doesn't know the future. So Paul is confident one way or the other, whether he lives or dies, whether he comes or doesn't come to Philippi, that they're going to be standing firm in one spirit. Now, what does that mean? The human spirit with one attitude, if you will, or is it in one Holy Spirit, standing firm in the Holy Spirit who is one and one standing firm in the Holy Spirit who is one? Uh, maybe I don't think so. It's probably one spirit. The, the NASB has a little less meaning in one attitude and one human spirit. And with one mind, striving together for the faith of the, faith of the gospel. Now, one mind cannot mean that Paul wanted the Philippians to agree on every single little issue. That is humanly impossible. It means that they should be united for the progress of the faith of the gospel. As he says in one chapter 1, verse 25, Since I am persuaded of, the, of this, 
I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So you keep your mind on the gospel. You agree that you spread the gospel, and then all other disagreements seem to be relatively minor. So one man, one mind for the one faith of the gospel. Notice that spirit and mind are put in opposition to one another. You are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, which tends to make you think that spirit is the same as mind, which tends to support the dichotomous view of the incorporeal part of man as opposed to the trichotomous view. Dichotomy means soul and spirit are the same. Soul, of course, consists, consists of mind, will, and emotion. So soul is mind. So you got spirit and mind together as one. That's what the dichotomists say. Whereas the trichotomist split out that incorporeal part of man, that's just a rabbit trail. It doesn't really affect what we're talking about here. It's just for those of you who might be theologically minded a little bit, I just pointed out to you. So with one spirit and one mind, the Philippians are going to be striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, what does Paul mean by the faith of the gospel? It depends on whether you take faith in the subjective sense or the objective sense. If it's in the subjective sense, you're saying this. Paul wants the Philippians to to strive together that there will be an increase of the faith that the gospel produces. The faith of the gospel is the subjective faith in the hearts of individuals that the gospel produces. So we strive together for faith to be increased, believers, belief to increase, subjective faith on the part of individual human beings, which the gospel produces, we want that to be increased. I think more likely the objective sense is what Paul meant here. The objective sense is the doctrinal content which is believed by those who follow the gospel. For example, we say the Muslim faith, the Buddhist faith, is a set of beliefs that they hold to. The Christian faith, we have a certain set of beliefs. And the, for the faith of the gospel, for the gospel, for the faith of Christianity, for the Christian faith, for gospel faith, striving together for Christianity. I think that's more probably what Paul meant there. It could go either way. Verse 28, Paul says, Don't be alarmed by your apart, apart, opponents. In no way be alarmed by your opponents. Now, interestingly, I have other translations which are a little bit stronger. The KGV says, In no way be terrified by your opponents. The NIV says, Don't be frightened by your opponents. It's a little bit stronger than alarmed. Well, alarm means you're just a little bit worried, but terrified and frightened. Don't be that way. Whatever it is, you don't need to be worried about your opponents. Now, who are the opponents in the Philippian church? Well, the Philippian church could have, been, could have been being persecuted, if that's the case. We don't know the details, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Just an assumption. And that's a reasonable assumption, because everywhere the church was under persecution back then, constantly. The NIV Study Bible suggests that it might not be external opponents, but internal opponents. There could be factions within the Philippians' own ranks who were fighting each other. Well, that's possible, too. could be either one. But in any way... The Philippians were not to be worried about all this. Internal division or external opposition. And now we have a word which, a relative pronoun that refers to something, but I don't know what. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you. What is a sign of destruction for the his opponents and salvation for the Philippians? Well, here's some options. It could be the opposition itself with the Philippian believers is a sign the opponents are going to be destroyed. In other words, hey, you want to fight with those who have gospel truth, the faith of the gospel? You want to fight with those? Well, as soon as you raise up your standard in opposition, that's a sign that you're going down. So in no way alarmed by your opponents, or we could phrase it this way, in no way alarmed by your opposition, which is a sign of destruction for your opponents. As soon as you see the opposition of those arrayed against the true gospel of Christ, you're going down. 
Well, that could be. Here's another option. The fact that the Philippians weren't worried is a sign for their opponent's destruction. I like this kind of this. Verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents, but the fact that you that you are not alarmed, that's going to be a signal to your opponents that, uh-oh, we're going down. Confidence on the part of the Philippians is a sign of destruction to their opponents and salvation for them. It could refer back to verse 27, the fact that the Philippians were standing firm in one spirit and one mind. That is a sign to the Philippians' opponents that they were going down, that they were going to be destroyed because the Philippians were standing firm in one spirit and one mind. For the truth. Well, whatever it was, I'm not sure. The point is that all of this stuff eventuates in a real good situation, which is salvation. And I'm assuming that's temporal salvation, not eternal salvation. They already have that, but they're being fought on a temporal level here, and they're going to win. And that too from God. Their victory, their salvation is going to come from God. Not, on, not with their own flesh, but God. We go now to verses 29 and 30, Philippians chapter 1. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. It has been granted. What has been granted? Two things. To believe in him, Paul says in verse 29, and verse 29, to suffer for his sake. Well, isn't that amazing? God gives us a gift. Suffering is a gift. Suffering is a gift. It has been given to us. That's hard to wrap your arms around. That suffering is going to eventuate in good things for us. It's going to bring us closer and closer to Christ. I got to, I've got to share this analogy here because I liked it so much. That I've only listened to one Tony Evans teaching in my life, and it was fantastic. He was talking about the coronavirus, and he was talking about suffering. And he said when he was young, he was chasing this girl who later became his wife, and she was not responding in a manner that was pleasing to Tony. So he had this idea. He said, I'm going to take her to the amusement park in Baltimore. And he took her to ride on the wild mouse. Now, that was a ride. That he, Tony Evans is about my age, and so I know the wild mouse. They used to come to the Sumter County Fair. It was at Myrtle. I don't know about the Sumter County Fair, but it was at Myrtle Beach. I know. And I rode the wild mouse. It's a little tiny car the size. It looks like a mouse. And it runs on these little tiny tracks that look like they're about a foot wide. And the tracks don't have curves in them. They just have right angle turns and the track goes up and up and up i don't know three stories high way up in the ground if you fell you'd be smushed like a roach and that mouse goes toward the right angle turn and the darn mouse goes over the edge and you're looking down and you don't see any track under you you see three stories of air and the hard ground below and you think oh dear god why did i ever get on this god deliver me why did i get on this thing i'm an idiot and then all of a sudden, the mechanism under the little mouse car grabs at the right angle and makes a complete 90-degree turn with a jerk, and you are now facing 90 degrees in a different direction, heading for the next right-angle turn. And it scares the ever-loving mud out of you. Well, he took his girlfriend, or his the object of his affections, on this, on this wild mouse ride. And she was holding on to him. She was so close to him. I mean, she was wrapped around him for dear life. And his, I thought that was pretty clever, pretty smart idea. Wish I'd have thought of it, all the girls that rejected my attempts. It's a great idea. But his point was, is that when the suffering increases, you get closer and closer to your source of safety. So, likewise, when Jesus grants us suffering, it's to make us get closer and closer to him. Closer and closer to him. So that's why it's a gift. 
because we can get closer to Christ. Now, suffering is a gift, but also believing in Christ is a gift. That fits Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, that faith is not of yourselves. It, the faith, is the gift of God. Notice in Philippians 1.29, Paul says, to believe in him has been granted for Christ's sake. I switched the order around a little bit, but that's what he's saying. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, so to believe in him has been granted, has been gifted, has been given. So belief is a gift. It is a grant. It is a result of God's giving it to us, our faith, our belief in him. So don't go around and say, well, I believe in Jesus, therefore I did it on my own motion. What a good person I am. I can boast about that because I believed in Jesus. No, Jesus he drew you into salvation, and as a response of that, then you believed in him. It was a gift that he gave you to believe in him. Here's another verse showing that our salvation is a gift. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him to them, he gave, gave means a gift, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So even the belief in his name is a gift, a gift of the right to become the son of God. Belief is a gift, folks. Ephesians 2.8, John 1.12, and Philippians 1.29, all three say the same thing. Belief is a gift. It's all by grace, folks. It's not by what your, even your faith is not based on your works or what you did on your own motion. It's all by grace. Now, Paul, let's go back to the suffering here. That's also a gift, as I mentioned. It's interesting that he mentions this right after he mentions that the Philippians will have joy. In verse 25, he says, if I get out of jail, I'm going to come to you and, then incre- and, I'm, and so that for your joy, I'm going to come to you for your joy. These two experiences, strangely enough, do not contradict. They don't contradict. You can have joy at the same time they're suffering. That is supernatural, folks. I tell you, there's a lot of suffering going on in the world now. Over 33,000 people, as I speak, have died in America because of this stupid Chinese virus that apparently sca- escaped out of a ill-attended lab, I don't know, they don't know that yet, but the speculation is, it's a reasonable speculation, that that's where it came from, and the Chinese covered it up, and you say, how can things like this happen? How can the whole world be flat on its back because of what a few irresponsible people in China did? Well, there's a lot of suffering, but Christians can take joy in the middle of that suffering. We need to remember to do that, to rejoice that even if we die, we're going to be with Jesus forever. Paul says in verse 30, He mentions suffering for Jesus' sake, and then he says, verse 30, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So the Philippians are experiencing the same suffering as Paul. What suffering of Paul is he talking about? Well, that's when he started the church, Acts 16, 12. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We were staying in this city for some days. Paul starts out, drop down to verse 19. But when her masters, and the her refers to a fortune-telling slave girl, saw that their hope of profit was gone. That's after Paul cast a demon out of the slave girl and she couldn't tell a fortune anymore. People got mad about that. It hit their pocketbook. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And then from verse 20 to 40, we could read that. We don't have time. I'll let Adam Clark summarize it. When Paul preached the gospel at Philippi, he was grievously persecuted, as we learn from Acts 16, 19 through 40, being stripped, scourged, thrown into prison, even into the dungeon, and his feet made fast in the stocks. Now, of course, the Philippians saw that because they were in Philippi when it happened, and then they says, not only that suffering, but you now hear the suffering that you hear to be in me. That means you hear about Paul being in prison at Rome. So, ladies and gentlemen, we 
and finished chapter 1, Paul has shown his great and tender concern for the Philippians. I'm sure if the Philippians were one of his favorite church churches, well, I don't know if it's like children. You're not supposed to favor one child over another. Let's put it this way. They were a good church, and Paul was really happy with them. All right, in our next section, our next audio, we'll take up Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This contains the famous canonic passage where Christ emptied himself. We will see the humility of Christ, all of the glory of Christ being veiled by his humility, veiled by his flesh. We'll take that up in the next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs> 